Indeed, O God, we are a people who long to commit ourselves to you and to your kingdom's business in a way that we could honestly and accurately sing that our voice is yours. Our eyes, our hands, our feet, our money, our marriages, our families, our jobs, our leisure, all of us is yours. To be taken and to be used as you see fit. Unfortunately, Father, we can't say that. There's not a one of us who can say that. We are a distracted people. We are a, um, we are a fractured people. And we have interests galore that choke out and strangle the effectiveness of the word in our lives. And though we sing marvelous truths of commitment and consecration, we know at the base of our souls that that is not there. And so we come to repent. We come to ask you, O God, the God who is good and whose mercy is everlasting, to forgive us for our, our fractured souls. Unite our hearts that we might fear thee, O God. Make us into people who are, um, who are maniacal in our pursuit of holy things. Father, we thank you for our country, a place where we have grown to love what she stands for and what we enjoy. And yet, those, those firm commitments of our country seem to be eroding all around us. And so, use the church of Jesus Christ in this hour of crisis to announce and proclaim that indeed truth exists. And truth is to be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is in himself incarnate truth. And I pray, Lord, that Grace Evan might be a part of so many other churches in this area and this country that will announce to this world that the, um, the cisterns that they hold will hold no water and that they are pursuing things which will not ultimately satisfy. Might we be privileged to announce and proclaim the excellencies and beauties of Christ Jesus. Lord, the, the time now has come for us to give, and uh, giving is not what we do real well. We, um, we have been taught uh, from the day we were born to be consumers. And you want us to serve. You want us to give. And so we come to learn a smidgen of that this morning. Take of all this abundance that we enjoy. And take a portion of it, Lord, and use it for the expansion of the kingdom of Christ. We give it for that reason. We don't want it to be squandered or misspent or frittered away. We want it to be devoted to the ongoing accomplishment of the Great Commission. That's why we're giving, Lord. Be pleased to allow us to be engaged in the accomplishment of that Great Commission. We pray, of course... In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you. Now, if you will, take your Bibles and turn in them with me to Genesis chapter 24.
Genesis 24. And you follow in your copies as I jump around in a, in a text. Now, guys, let me tell you why I'm going to jump around. This story is um, 67 verses long. It is one story. And uh, part of the story is repeated. The story unfolds, and then uh, later on in the chapter, the story is told about what unfolded. So I'm going to skip uh, many of those verses that just retell the story. Actually, I'm going to skip when it first happened. I'm going to get to the point where it's being retold. So you follow as I read. Uh, we're going to f- begin with the first nine verses, and then we'll skip over uh, to verse 32. But you follow as I read. Genesis chapter 24 at verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me back to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven who took me up, took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me saying, To your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Okay, folks, first nine verses, you've seen what this is about. Now, it takes place. The servant goes off. He runs into Rebecca at a well. She, uh, he prays and asks God to identify this woman who would be the wife, the bride of Isaac. And it all unfolds. Now, skip over with me to verse 32. He is now, that is, Abraham's servant is now in the home of Rebekah's brother Laban. And he's telling the story. Verse 32 of chapter 24. Then the man came to the house, and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told about my errand. And he said, speak on. That he right there is Rebekah's brother, Laban. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, and he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female uh, servants, and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my my, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house 
and to my family and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way. And you shall take a wife for my son, for my family and for my father's house. You will be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family. For if they will not give her to you, then you will be released from my oath. And this day... I came to the well and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if you will now prosper the way in which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water. And it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water and I say to her, please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. And she says to me, drink and I will also draw for your camels. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. But before I finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder. And she went down to the well and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. And she made haste and let her pitcher down from her shoulder and said, drink and I will give your camels a drink also. So I drank. And she gave the camels a drink also. Then I asked her and said, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists. And I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord. And blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. So now the servant has told the story. He has asked for Rebecca to return. And her brother turns to her and says, okay, what are you going to do? Beginning at verse 55. But her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that, she may go. And he said to them, Do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. So they said, We will call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, that endures forever. There's something that I've got to do before we launch into this story, ladies and gentlemen. There's something that you've got to get. There's some, I've got to teach you a bit of hermeneutics. Now, that's a big word. It's a big churchy word. It's a big seminary word. Hermeneutics is nothing more than the rules of interpretation. That is, there's a right way and a wrong way to interpret this book. For instance, when the Bible, when Jesus says, I am the door, how do you interpret that? Surely you don't think that Jesus has got a knob, do you? Well, what you have done is interpret. Well, there are some rules of interpretation of the Bible, and that's called hermeneutics. Now, I want to show you one, but keep your finger in Genesis 24. See if you can find real quick Galatians chapter 4. We got to do this before we can get into the story. Galatians chapter 4. 
This is a lesson in hermeneutics. Stay with me. Galatians chapter 4, verse 22. Uh, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. Now, you know that story. Abraham had two sons. He had one son whose name was Ishmael, and his mother was uh, Hagar. Remember that? Abraham got kind of uh, frustrated and a little bit uh, antsy, and so he, he bore a son by Hagar, his handmaid, or Sarah's handmaid, and they had a son by the name of Ishmael. But then years later, some 13 years later, he has a son, this, this miracle boy, by Sarah, and his name is Isaac. Look, Abraham had two sons. Ishmael, Isaac, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. Keep reading. But he who was of the bondwoman, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. And he of the free woman, Isaac, through promise. Now, here it is. Verse 24. Galatians 4, 24. Look at it. Which things are symbolic. Do you see that? Do you know what Paul has done, folks? He has said that there is a story back in the book of Genesis about Abraham and his two sons. One of those sons was born by a bond, a slave, and another was born by a free woman, Sarah. And um, indeed, that's a piece of history. It gives you a nice story about an event. It tells you true history. Indeed, Abraham was a real man. He had a couple of wives. They were real women, and they had real sons by the name of Ishmael and Isaac. And yet, folks... There is something beyond the value of the history. Do you see it? Galatians 4.24. These things are symbolic. These two boys, Ishmael and Isaac, that whole story, true story, uh, I'm not trying to undercut the historicity of it. It is all historical. Yes, yes, yes. But beyond just the sheer historical value of that story, There's more. There's more meaning there, folks. And and I say to you that we often miss that part. Those two boys have have a meaning to them that is ours via symbolism. You understand that? I mean, that's pretty simple. I'm saying to you that the book of Genesis, with the Old Testament, there's a lot of it in the Old Testament, but particularly in the book of Genesis... There are stories that are of historical value. I mean, you know, dates, places, names, times, events, all all history. Yes, yes, yes. But in those stories, there is another meaning. And it's that meaning, that symbolic meaning that has such redemptive value for the people of God. You with me? You don't find much of this in the New Testament, but you find a lot of it in the Old when you read one of these stories that were a piece of his, uh, that have great historical value, yes, you have to look beyond that historical value and ask, what else is being said here? What else is involved here? Because there's a meaning that is symbolic. With me? Okay. The story that I read you in Genesis chapter 24. It's a real story, true story, historical story, you know, history, 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 yes, yes, yes. But there's more. This story that I just read you is a story about a father. His name's Abraham. He's old, dying. And this old father 
is determined to have a bride for his son Isaac. And he sends his most devoted, his most loyal and faithful trusted servant to procure a bride for his son. Is any of that ringing a bell? (laughs) It ought to, but if it didn't, stay with me. Because I want you to see, folks, this is a story about a determined father. A father who is determined to have a bride for his son, and so he sends his most dependable servant to to go procure that bride for his son. Now, Stay with me because there's a, there's a meaning, but there's more. And I hope you'll get that other one that is so beautiful. Abraham's determined to have a bride for his son Isaac. His determination is seen in a couple of ways. First of all, in, in choosing his most reliable and his most faithful, his most trusted servant, you see how serious this whole thing is. Abraham wants a bride for Isaac, but he isn't sending anybody to get her. He's sending the person that he can trust the most. He is going to send his most trusted servant. And by the way, his name is Eliezer. That's not given to you in Genesis 24, but it is given to you in Genesis 15, verse 2. Abraham's determined to have a bride, and so he picks the man that he can trust the most to go perform this. The other way that you, another way that you can see his determination is in this strange, this rather strange oath that he takes. Did you see it? It's in verse uh, 2 or 3 where Abraham says, um, listen, I want you to get rid of wife and uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your hand and put it under my thigh. Now, I don't know about the rest of you, but, uh, you know, I'm not wild about putting my hand under another man's thigh. You know, that doesn't exactly excite me about You know, I don't like to sit next to a man in a pew in church, much less put my hand underneath his thigh. I'm just not into it, folks, and I know you'll be glad to hear that. But but I'm not. Well, the point is, all of that, all that that's doing is simply underscoring just how important this whole mission is. Eliezer, come here. I want you to go get a bride for my son Isaac. Don't get him over here. I don't want a woman out of the land of the Canaanites. I want you to go to my family. Now, I want you to stick your hand underneath ooh, my thigh, and um, we're going to make an oath together, me and you. Because this father, he's determined. He's determined to have a bride for his son. I know another father who is determined to have a bride for his son. It is God, the father, who is determined to have a bride for his son, Jesus Christ. God's determination is seen in several ways in the New Testament, but let me mention a couple. Do you remember those parables in the New Testament about the the wedding feasts? Remember those ones in Matthew, ones in Luke, Luke 9, Matthew 19, I think? 
And these wedding feasts, and, and, and the one in Luke, I know, uses the word compel. You know, he, he, he calls the wedding feast, and, and um, the room's not full. And, and so the master says, all right, go out and compel them to come because we're going to have, we're going to have a wedding for my son. Make sure that that room is full of people celebrating this grand and glorious occasion that my son has a bride. And so, folks, what you see in Genesis 24, I'm suggesting, is a picture of the determination of God the Father to have a son, to have a bride for his son. And so, God the Father also commissions his most loyal and faithful servant to go get this bride for his son. By the way, back to the Genesis 24 story. The name Eliezer, you know what it means? It means the helper of God. (laughs) Abraham sent the helper of God and God sent the helper of God. God sends the Holy Spirit to procure a bride for his son because our Heavenly Father is determined. Far more determined than was Abraham. He's determined to have a bride for his son. So you see, folks, the concern of the Father, the Heavenly Father, is that there be a bride for the son. Is that your concern? You know, do the concerns of God concern you? Because if they do, that's a good sign. If God's concerns are your concerns, then wow, we've, we've got, we can draw some conclusions here. But I want you to know that through this picture of Abraham and his determination to have a bride for his son, you and I can conclude that our Heavenly Father is equally determined and even more so, to have a bride for his son. You know, it's interesting. You never find in the New or Old Testament that God is determined to see people be faithful in church attendance. Or he is determined to, to see them teach eloquently. But he is determined to have a bride for his son. In the mind of God, one of the things that moves the great heart of God is that there be... A bride for the son. And um, what if uh, Eliezer, back to the story in Genesis 20, what if Eliezer had gotten back and uh, he says to Abraham, uh, well, did you get a bride for my son? And, and he says, well, no, Abraham, we didn't get a bride for your son. But boy, while we were down there, we, um, we sure had some great uh, tent meetings. And we sure manifested some gifts of the Spirit while I was away. And boy, did we raise a whole lot of money. And my, did we put together a great choir. And we built some great buildings while I was there. You see, ladies and gentlemen, that wasn't Abraham's intent. Nor is it God's. God is determined not to have a great festival of music. He's determined to have a bride for his son. And there's nothing that moves the great heart of God than that of bringing a bride to his son. Do you have a part in that? 
Are you involved in what moves the great heart of God? Well, you, um, we, we go, just moving on in the story, um, there is this seriousness. I mean, you see that Eliezer understands how serious is Abraham. I mean, for instance, he, he balks in verse 5. He says, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Perhaps the woman will not be willing to go with me. And, uh, you know, sh- shall, I, shall I go back down there? You see, my point is, Eliezer is reluctant to enter into this oath because he sees, oh, my goodness, I've never seen Abraham like this before. I mean, he's really interested. I mean, he's never asked me to stick my hand under his hip. No, sir. He is really interested in seeing this take place. And I'm not about to make an oath until I fully understand the terms. You know, uh, Abraham, there's going to be great difficulties in getting over there and getting a bride for Isaac. I mean, it's a long distance, and, and there's, there's people that might kill me, and, you know, I'm not sure, I don't even know where I'm going. I'm not sure that I can, um, I, I can pull this thing off. And, 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 oh, by the way, Abraham, what if the woman won't come? Uh, what if she says, well, listen, you're asking me to believe in somebody I've never seen. Listen, listen, Abraham, do you understand that she might be over there saying, I'm not about to leave my friends and family to chase after some wild thing that you just talked about. You know, Abraham, what if she doesn't want to come? Do I take Isaac down to her? I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that is one of the questions that's being posed in the 21st century in the evangelical church. If the bride won't come to Jesus, why don't we just modify things and so that we can make sure that Jesus can get down to them? Let's just tweak the story a bit. Let's just shave off the rough edges. You know, let's just change things, modify, accommodate, because, you know, they may not want to believe this story. So let's take out all the offensiveness of this story so that, so that the people out there will really respond better. Eliezer says to Abraham, what if she doesn't come? Do I take Isaac down there? And Abraham says, don't you dare. Don't you take her down there. If she won't come, that's none of your responsibility. But don't you take my son there. Don't you remove the standards about my son that I have set. Don't you dare. If she doesn't come, so be it. But don't. Don't take my son and lower him to make him more appealing to the potential bride. Do you know how often that's going on in the evangelical community today, ladies and gentlemen? We can't tell people about this or that or the other because, I mean, my goodness... We've got to accommodate this message of ours to, to the people we're trying to reach. Let's shave off the, the, the fine edge and let's eliminate the points and the sting and the offensiveness so that we can reach people. I'm going to say something, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm telling you, it, I, it, I say it with great trepidation, but I want you to know something. Reaching people is not as important as honoring the living God. 
in the name of reaching people, if we tamper with what God has entrusted to us, we have erred grievously. If the bride, the potential bride doesn't respond, that's not your business. You just go, Eliezer, and be faithful to the commission that I've given you. You go tell the bride that there's something waiting on her beyond her wildest dreams. But if she doesn't believe you, if she won't come, if she loves her friends and family too much, that she wants to stay, that's not your concern, Eliezer. You just go tell her about this glorious son of mine that has all the riches and inheritance that are now mine, that are about to be his. You go tell him. And then Eliezer gets to Rebecca, as you know the story. She's out watering her flocks, and uh, he meets her at the well. Would you give me a drink? And she says, fine, I'll give you a drink, and let me water the camels too. And Eliezer says, oh, that's the sign that I asked for. You're the woman. He gives her a nose ring and some other trinkets. They go back to her brother's house. Apparently, her father is dead. And they sit, and they meet together. And Eliezer tells Laban all about this great master of his. Gang, in this story, master, the term master, my master, is mentioned 22 times in one chapter. My master is this, my master is that, my master is this, my master is that. If you could only see the glories and the beauties and the wonder of my master. And my master has a son. And my master is determined to have a bride for him. And she's it. Your sister Rebecca, she's it. And so the brother Laban listens to all this and and says, well, he sees the ten camels that are loaded down with all kinds of beautiful, wonderful goods, you know, and he thinks, but, you know, I really never have seen him. I'm, I'm going to have to exercise faith here that he really does exist and that he really is that good. And so he hears the story about my master, my master, my master's riches, my master's greatness, my master's son, my master's commands, my master's kingdom, my master's God. And then he says, now tell me, I want to take Rebecca back. I want to take Rebecca back as the bride of Isaac. And if you'll let her go, tell me. But if she won't go, tell me that too, because I need to get back. And at that moment in the story, ladies and gentlemen, a crisis has arisen. In fact, it's very interesting. They sit down to have, they spread out this great meal before Eliezer. And before he eats, he wants to, he wants to get this settled. <laughs> you know, I'm not here to eat. I'm hungry and yeah, I've got some creature comforts that are, but my concern is to be faithful to the God who sent, to the master who sent me. And so before we start entering, entering into all these delicacies, let me tell you my story because I want an answer. There's an urgency in his voice. Did, did, did you hear it in, in verse 49? He says, 
Now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left hand. I've, I've come here on a mission, and I'm not interested in, in being comfortable. I'm not interested in having my belly filled. I'm not interested in anything. But will, you, will she come or will she not? And so Laban and, her, and his mother, Rebecca's mother, says, well... <laughs> We're overwhelmed with all of this. I mean, I tell you what, why don't we just wait, put it off for about 10 days, and then, then we'll make a decision. And, and, and Eliezer says, no, no. Don't delay. Don't put this decision off. To delay is to, is to make things harder and worse. I want an answer now. Right now. And so Laban calls for his sister. Rebecca enters the room and she's reminded of what is in front of her. And then, ladies and gentlemen, in one of the most glorious statements, I think, anywhere to be found in the Bible. In verse 58, where we find they called Rebecca and they said to her, Will you go with this man? Well, will you? You know, I read a story once, and I think it's a Spurgeon story. I'm not sure where I got it because my mind doesn't remember. But it's not my story. I didn't make this up. But it was a story about the Roman armies. And when, when Rome was at the pinnacle of her power... She would send out these vast legions against her enemies. And, um, uh, of course, before the, the battle was engaged, the, um, the general of the Roman army would offer peace to the potential enemy. And so they would call under, a, I guess, a white flag. They would call and, and they would meet. And the general of the Roman army would meet out in the middle of, with, the, with the other guy and they'd say, Okay, what will it be? Will it be war? Or will it be submission to Rome? And as the story goes, if the, um, if the potential enemy said something like, well, let me go back and consult with my advisors, that the Roman general would take out his sword, he would walk up to the man and draw a circle around him in the dirt. He would step back He would look at the man now inside that circle and say to him this. Before you leave this circle. Will it be war? Or will it be peace? Ladies and gentlemen, I would to God. That I could come to where you're seated every last one of you. And draw a circle around you. And say to you. Will you go with this man? Will you join yourself to this Christ? Will there be peace and everlasting life forevermore? Or will there be condemnation? Before you leave that circle. Tell me. Will you go with this man?
I told you this story before, but um, it, it ages me. You've got to be my age to even remember any of this. So uh, those of you who are younger, you're not going to remember this. But if you're my age, you remember. Back, back when I was a kid, I mean, I, I would think somewhere 10 to low teens, something. There was, a, there was a television show that was quite popular. It was debunked as being fraudulent. But the, the title of the show was a game show called $64,000 Question. You might remember it. Um, I mean, you've got to be my age to remember, but you might you, you remember it. I mean, it was, uh, they were feeding the people the answers. It was really a, it, it was really a scandal. But, but anyway, if you ever watched the game show, here's what happened. You entered the first night and you answered a $500 question. If you got the right answer to that question, you won $500. But then you were asked, do you want to go on? Because if you want to go to the next question, you forfeited your 500 and now you were playing for a thousand. And so if you got the $1,000 question, you were asked, okay, do you want to forfeit that 1000 and ask the $2,000 question? And then they went from 2000 to 4000 and from 4000 to 8000 and from 8000 to 16000 and from 16000 to 32000 and from 32000 you went to the biggie. $64,000 question. <laughs> There we go. And I mean, the night, I mean, there wasn't that many of you ever made it to that, but you know, on the night that the man was going to answer the question of the $64,000 question, they'd take this poor slob and they'd put him in this little capsule, you know, kind of a hermetically sealed, soundproof capsule. And of course it was glass and had these lights all over it that would flash all off and, you know, and then they'd ask him the question. Question would be issued and he was given, I forget, 60 seconds to come up with the answer. After that 60 seconds, he had one of three options. If he answered correctly, he won 64 grand. If he answered incorrectly, he forfeited the 32 that he already won. He walked out with nothing. But the other option was to not have any answer at all. But ladies and gentlemen, do you understand... That in terms of that game show, no answer and the wrong answer are the same thing. He didn't have three options. He had two options. You get it right and you win. You get it wrong or you don't get any answer and you lose. My friends. In terms of the destiny of your own soul, you have two options. There's only two. There's not three. And to delay is to make the soul more hard. To delay, to put it off for ten days or ten minutes is to make the soul harder and less responsive to the beauties and the excellencies of the call of Christ to you. And so I ask you, Will you go with this man? What message would you have me take back to my master? Don't leave your seat until you've answered. Father, I do pray that you will use these vain babblings of mine to alert people to the great need that they have.
to a relationship with you through faith in Jesus Christ. That the only way to, to, to reconcile with the God whose eyes are too holy to even look upon our iniquity is to embrace this gloriously beautiful Son of yours, Christ Jesus the Lord. And I pray by the most trusted and faithful servant that you've got, the Holy Spirit, that you will draw a circle around every person in this room and that they would dread crossing the lines of that circle until the matters of their soul have been determined. Oh God, settle it now for countless listeners. For those of us who have tasted the richness and the beauties of grace and have seen the marvelous excellencies of Christ Jesus, understanding that we have no human merit before you and understanding that it is only Christ's merit by which any of us are saved, those of us who have already come to that conclusion, we bless you. We bless you for impressing us so deeply at a soulish level that indeed your Son was beautiful and we long to have Him as our own. For us, O God, we thank you for the accomplished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. There is no boasting, there is no merit, there is no pride. It is only humble reliance upon the finished work of Christ. Now, Father, replicate that in the lives of many. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.